Mr. Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. I find that we all, people always say the best shit uh, off mic. And then as soon as you hit record, people are like, they just clam right up the... Yeah. Um, but we do, um, the, in light of the, in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, uh, we are foregoing, uh, any edits. Um, we're, we're doing a editing, uh, austerity program here. Um, so I'm just going to do a, uh, I'm going to read, uh, from my brain, a, a bio for you that I remember just from our conversations and whatnot. Uh, Ben. Oh, far out. All right. <laughs> Uh, ben Schaefer is an editor at DeCapo, uh, which is now part of Hachette. Hachette Books. Um, DeCapo is no more in DeCapo name. Are, man, I, yeah. I, I muffed the first biggest part <laughs> of your bio. The, it's okay. Um, and you've been working as an editor for 20 years? I've been working as an editor since 94, actually. So that's uh, 28 years. So oh, I think. I, wait. Yeah, I think that's 28, right? Holy so I'm crap. over you now. <laughs> uh, and uh, you've been the editor for books by uh, Gregory Corso, uh, Doug Stanhope, and our beloved Mark Lanigan. Um, yeah, two, two out of three there. Not Corso, Allen Ginsberg. You, I thought you did a book with, uh, with Gregory Corso. Am I, I did a book with uh, Herbert Hunky. Where did uh, I get a, where I did I get Corso from? The, he's another I, beat. The, I did know him very, very well, but uh, I never did uh, did a book project with him. And I, I think you gave me um, a copy of the Herbert Hunky book. Probably, yeah. I, I have a, you gave me a couple of uh, Trouble Boys, the replacements mm -hmm. book, which I started and then something in my life caught fire. And yep. I, I, I didn't finish. And I also have a copy of... Uh, the Mayor of McDougal Street, the Dave yeah. book, which you gave me a copy of, and then something uh, caught fire. Um, I love that book. So, uh, so welcome to my bullshit podcast, where we will try to try to correct all the sure. misinformation I just sent out into the universe. It's cool, man. The um, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. You know, uh, it's the end of a work day. I'm here in West Hollywood. Three o'clock. I get up early. I work, you know, Hachette Books is in New York. So I work on a, I live on an East Coast schedule. So, you know, I have, uh, I'm like, I'm like an old guy. I like have dinner at 430 and things like that. So this is towards the end of my, my day wrapping up wherein I will now struggle to stay awake till nine. And uh, this will help. I, I'm loving the, uh, the 55 plus early bird menu part of my life that I'm moving into now. The, a friend of mine had a micro party last night and it started at like nine and I, I went, yeah. I went to it in my pajamas so that there would be a streamlined. So I would have, I would have both an excuse to get out of there. Like, Oh shit, I didn't realize I'm in my pajamas. And then I could come home and just like walk straight into bed and no doubt and fall down. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of the best things about being 50, I'm turning 50 in five days, and one of the best things is getting over that fear of missing out. Bullshit. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, um, Lucia Berlin was one of my teachers when I was at the University of Colorado, and um, 
man, I still miss the shit out of her. Um, the, and she, we were talking once about, we were talking about my drinking or going out or, you know, she was like, what did you do last night? And I was like, Oh, I, I fell into a hedge or something, you know, the, and I, you know, I was like the, what did you do last night? And she was like, you know, I was out having dinner with friends and I was having a perfectly delightful time. And then I thought about my bed and then I went home and, uh, and at, at the time, it, I felt like she was speaking a foreign language, you know, that I was like, I, you know, and now I, I, I think about my, I, oftentimes I think about my bed, you know. Uh, Things change, for I, sure. The, um, well, let's talk about Lanigan a little bit. I mean, we have many things to talk about. The, sure. um, I, I mean, I feel like, uh, I feel like you and I have been podcasting since we met. That we have these awesome sort of sustained conversations about life yeah. and art and literature and survival and the um but one of the ways in which we got to know each other was why well, I, I knew of you because you were um you know sort of stanhope's evil editor at the mm-hmm. um you know the man in the high tower the when he was um when he was doing his book the mm-hmm. And then you and I met um, in person for the first time when, um, you know, when we were sort of agitating, annoying Lanigan into finally writing uh, Sing Backwards and Weep. Yeah. And and we've stayed friends. Um, Yeah. How is your grieving process going? Well... You know, it's a, it's a daily thing. It goes through phases and stages, you know, uh, like everything else, I guess. Um, I still find it hard uh, to believe. I don't know that I've accepted that I won't see him sing again in particular. Um, you know, I saw him play n- numerous times and uh, it was always really great, you know, and always really memorable. It's a big part of my life. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I've seen my last Lanigan show and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's just, that's awful. You know, you know, I think about losing Lou Reed and, and Bowie and people like that. And, and, you know, these people who have, you know, helped, helped you, the universal you, me, I guess, and, and lots of people, um, you know, understand how we are feeling and feel less alone in life because their music kept, kept us company um i guess it's part of getting older too but you know it doesn't make it you know any less sad you know i i've i've known my whole life that eventually there'll be a time when all these people are gone and then i'll be gone you know but um i guess it's just how it is but you know it's a terribly sad thing and it's not like we can't listen to um the work he left behind and there's a lot of it um but you know especially the last uh really since 2012 i guess it's blues funeral forward i've gotten used to a very steady stream of his great work you know coming 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 whether uh his own albums or solo album lanigan band other uh, collaborations um you know and they're and they've, they've come to a halt you know um you know it's 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 just very sad you know what are you gonna do i you know, i think we both know he wasn't anywhere near finished um with his life's work 
I knew he would, he would, he was the kind of guy who was going to continue doing it up to the last minute. I just didn't think the last minute was coming uh, when it did. Uh, Stanhope has a bit from years ago, you know, talking about Kurt Cobain and, you know, he says, Oh, everybody says, you know, his death was so tragic. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he was just out of shit. And the, Mm -hmm. and that's the thing with Lanigan is that um, we know we have scientific documentation. We have every kind of proof that he wasn't out of shit. I, um, one of the things I said to him that, um, you know, when we were sort of talking about, you know, because I, I, I was sort of posing that, you know, the, the theoretical question to him of like, you know, does one run out of songs or does one, you know, because I've been writing the same song over and over again since I was 17. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know, I sort of tiptoed around this with him. And then finally I just sort of like slid into a broadside because there's no way to say it, you know? And I, I said, you know, the, I said, you know, I, I mean this as a compliment, but I feel like um, uh, you're moving out of your sort of like masculine power as a songwriter and into your hag power, which is to say that there was um, something funny. timeless and uh, fucking paranormal, like supernatural about, you know, his work. And, um, and he said, thank you. I, you know, I totally understand that the, which is good. I can probably count them at the amount of times when he and I understood each other perfectly on one hand. The, I think that's, I think you're right. I think there really was something otherworldly about the, uh, the later work in particular on the I'm straight songs of sorrow. Like the first song I wouldn't want to say, um, didn't sound like anything he'd ever done before to me you know, to me, and, and the point of the view and the singer in that song is almost coming from the other side somewhat, you know, spooky. Yeah, the, um, it's funny to think now about, you know, oh, his voice, you know, coming from the other side, because mm-hmm. when he was alive, his voice was coming from the other side, you know, the, sure. that, that was something that was, um, you know, so, you know, so, so powerful for us. And the, um, one of the things that I feel too about, you know, about his death, you know, like losing, you know, I mean, I started listening to Velvet Underground when I was whatever, 15 or 16, the, um, and I started listening to David Bowie before that, but those, those artists never, they, they felt like ours or maybe like my dad's or like my older cousins or the cooler kids, but like, but there was something about Lanigan that his work, to me, it always felt like mine. Mm-hmm. Um, the so you know, you know, and I, I it it feels like um, it doesn't you know it, it doesn't feel just like losing a friend or losing an artist, but it's sort of like, oh, did you hear Running Water died, or did you hear Sunshine died, or mm-hmm. you know that like. Um, it, a force of nature, like something elemental, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's. Uh, I haven't been listening to music like at all. Um, you know, just because, uh, like, I can't bear to. You know, I was driving home one night and I was upset, and I was like, "Well, maybe now, maybe now I'll throw on uh, Old Swan from uh, mm. from Gargoyle." Gargoyle, and, sure. Uh, and just have a good like high speed cry. And I was like, no, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready 
the um that's interesting the only song i've listened really uh by mark is from the very last album dark market skeleton joe uh the song lost animals it's a really really beautiful song and it's like a, a summation of his life and it seems almost to be like a statement of intent as to what he planned on doing with the rest of it you know yeah, uh, you know, he's, you know, I'm just going to stand on this stage until the curtain falls, basically, you know, the curtain was falling sooner than we thought, but that's what it says. And it's like a recitation and it's uh, a really fucking heartbreaking, heartbreaking song. That's the only one I've played, you know, that's interesting. You say that about music. I find myself, I, I've only, I think, and I don't know if this is a coincidence. I've only been listening to like ambient music <laughs> since he died. I, I think it's because I work with words all day. I, I, lay, I can't take lyrics that much, you know? I yeah. have to put on uh, Brian Eno and those instrumental Daniel and Wah records yep. or Philip, Philip Glass, something that's like really repetitive. I don't want to say background music because it's not, but I, it kind of is, but not in a bad way. You know what I mean? There, there was an album I discovered in the late 90s that was, uh, I think it's just called Musique. Um, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll have to dig out a link and send it to you. So if you, if you like the, you know, the, you know, Lanois stuff, you'll dig that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, Eric Bachman from Archers of Loaf, I feel like he made an instrumental album that I really enjoyed around that time too. Um, cool. I, I can't write um, the, well, listen to music either. I, mean, I remember reading a thing about uh, Stephen King, you know, blasting like uh, Kid Rock and Eminem, you know, when he moans, you know, yeah, yeah. while he's writing the i'm not sure he's blasting kid rock nowadays but the um, i fuck it i've enjoyed some kid rock music i don't give a shit you know i think i think he's a garbage person but that's not how we choose the artists we you know we we pick to listen to or to enjoy and like the you know if i hear a kid rock song uh on the radio fuck it i'll turn it up i don't care <laughs> i was annoyed with him from the get-go because in the earliest song that i remember um was we where he called himself the bull god and i was like no the bull god is dave weindorf from monster magnet damn it it's not you kid rock yeah <laughs> uh, yeah you can't you know is kid rock also the real slim shady that i, I feel like he's actually like he's been a fucking poser since day one but the sure. I, i'm sure that will get people angry at me the um what are you what are you working on right now or are you at liberty to 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 share with us what you're working on right now um yeah i mean the the stuff that it has just gone say in you know to copy it we we have a really great um pretty major chuck berry biography coming from the great writer rj smith uh wow. who wrote a, a really terrific biography of james brown and uh, also a biography of the photographer robert frank and this is his next book, and it's a really, really brilliant, well-researched um, biography of Chuck Berry, but also the world that made him, you know, a lot about St. Louis and uh, how that shaped who he was, because he was a complicated guy, you know? I mean, uh, underrated as a writer, a great, great, great lyricist. I mean, you know, short stories in those songs, you know? But uh, a guy with some interesting tastes, I guess we could say. Well, not even yeah. interesting, kind of freaky, you know, Chuck and Berry was, uh, Chuck Berry was one of my gateway drugs to rock and roll. You know, the I, I yeah. mean, I was I was really like, um, you know, I, I remember hearing Johnny B. Good and just being like, you know, mom, dad, you know, fuck your dreams. Like, this is it. 
you know, and I, in some I, ways it never got better than that in a way. Yeah. I, it, you know? I, I, I peaked early at about like six <laughs> in the tennis racket on my, uh, bouncing on my sister's bed, you know, the, but I, yeah. I have a red 335 right here that is, you know, directly, and I would draw a direct line um, to that from, mm-hmm. you know, hearing Chuck Berry 40 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, um, did, did you read the, um, the article on James Brown at, uh, or about James Brown playing Rikers Island uh, that was in uh, New York Times recently? No, I didn't see that. I must have missed that somehow. The um, great, you know, really cool story there and i actually i watched the biography on him or the biopic that came out a couple years ago and they um they talk about there was like a contractual thing with um little richard had been hired to play somewhere and he he was he wasn't going to show up and the promoter was terrified as as to what was going to happen so uh, James Brown did the gig in like pancake makeup and, and that's where, and that was sort of the birth of James Brown because it, that, that's where he got all the, the, oh, high, far out. the false wow. was the, um, you know, was basically, you know, being a, a little Richard cover band, the, but I mean, but that's a, a story that we see again and again in, um, in rock and roll and writing and stuff like that. I mean, the, the Beatles were a Chuck Berry cover band. Oh yeah. And it's, it's all about um, misinterpretation and bad info and starting the podcast with bad information that <laughs> that's um, but, you know, I mean, that seems to be how a lot of, you know, artists evolve is. Um, yeah. Like, you know, you have to learn the idiom first, I guess, before you, you know, do your own thing in it or put your own spin on it, I guess. Yeah. Everyone starts out imitating to some degree, I would think, you know, yeah, the um, and I'm gonna have to go back now and, and look mm-hmm. at Chuck Berry songs and sort of try and like diagram them and stuff like that because I remember it being like, um, uh, you know, sort of very Tin Pan Alley influenced narrative driven songs, um, uh, very mm-hmm. formulaic where there's the turnaround in the third verse or the third yeah. chorus. Um, mm-hmm. the but yeah, Chuck Berry was a hell of a writer. Oh, yeah, there's so much detail in, in so few words, you know, setting and characters and, you know, what the room looks like, you know, I mean, everything. Yeah, he was and he worked he worked very hard at it. He was really, really conscious that way. You know, it, that's just the first book that came to mind because it's the one kind of I, I was most recently working on. Uh-huh. I just don't want to not mention someone and, and bum them out if they happen to find this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just qualifying that, you know, the. Uh, while we're on the subject of bumming people out, I said something mm. in the last podcast that I think is going to go up tomorrow that I already want to walk back. And, you know, we were, um, I, I was talking to Alec Bemis, who you would love, the the founder of uh, Brassland Record Label. Um, yeah, I know who he is. The National, and yeah, great dude. And um, I didn't really realize this because I've been up to my own shit, you know, the... Um, but in the in the last couple of years with uh, Sing Backwards and Weep coming out, um, he uh, got like went hard on Lanigan's work and like read the book and enjoyed it so much that then he was like, oh, my God, this is an artist I missed. So he's had that archaeological pleasure of sort of discovering your new favorite artist in your mid 40s. Oh, yeah. 
you know, and then getting back, getting to sort of go back and unearth all that stuff. The, mm -hmm. and, um, the, you know, and, and we were talking about Lanigan on the mic and I said that the thing about Lanigan's voice, you know, you and I talked about this, you know, Lanigan is an interpreter of other people's music and oh, the, yeah. um, his voice took up so much space that, any song that he sang became a Lanigan song, you know? Sure. And I, I was talking to Alec about it. And I said, the, one of the frustrating things about Mark um, and one of the maddening things about sort of remembering him is that um, sometimes when he was on the mic, you know, when he opened his mouth, he was in conversation with the divine, you know, that he was speaking directly to the muse and um other times it was a different master, you know, the, that he, he absolutely served two masters, you know, addiction and creation. But I think where I got it wrong though, is that in his, in his life, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong here, that I feel like in his life, there were times where he was serving his illness and not his art but I think where I got it wrong is that when he was on the mic, he was always speaking to the muse. I think so. You know, I never saw him do, turn in a bad show. And not only that, I never heard him hit a bad note. I mean, the amount of microtonal control that he had over his voice, he was always in tune. You know, he yeah. didn't. He, I never saw him waver off. I never saw him forget a lyric. Um, so I got to should say, though, I. I I think the first time I saw him was 03. You know, I didn't come to him through Screaming Trees. I barely had heard them. I'd heard a couple of their singles and that was it. I first heard him when I saw him sing with Queens of the Stone Age at Roseland in New York City, 2003, 2004, somewhere around there. And was completely like, whoa, who's that? Because he yeah. it was so powerful that he'd come out and throw down some darkness and then walk off before the song was over. <laughs> it was very, for someone who didn't move much, it was incredibly theatrical in a way, you know, and the voice that came out of him, I didn't know. I remember asking some, someone next to me, I was like, who is that? You know, I mean, the voice instantly, instantly grabbed me, you know, and, uh, and, it, and it was kind of like talked about otherworldly. We, we talked about that. Or it, it was kind of some kind of summoning, you know, from the depths somewhere, you know, and, uh, and yeah, he did have a, he, I could tell by looking at him that he'd been through some shit, you know, at that point, he was pretty thin then too, you know, and, and he had a, you know, a, a countenance, you know, that it generally can only be traced to, you know, certain things, you know, that we've all come in contact with. And, um, the whole presentation was, was just incredible, you know, and I guess in like, so I went backwards from Bubblegum. I don't think Bubblegum was out yet. I think maybe here comes that Will Chill had just come out. That's another great in, album. In the EP and then but maybe Bubble, or maybe they were both out. It's hard to remember. It's been I, since, I feel like uh, they both came out around the same time. The Yeah, it was around the same time. So, uh, and so <laughs> I got to go backwards and then you had to track things down a little bit more back then. The, uh, the sub pop records, you know, kind of in reverse, let's see, which there was already a, a, a body of, uh, um, you know, solo records in, 
uh, winding sheet and I'll take care of you and uh, scraps at midnight and field songs. Field songs was probably my favorite. And each one of them, I was like, how is it? I've never heard of this person. You know, like you were saying earlier, that belongs to us. Maybe, maybe he feels that way more than Lou Reed and Bob Dylan, just because he, uh, Lou Reed and uh, David Bowie, Dylan's still here. Not going. Yeah, that's like, be another, that's going to be another tough one, wood. dude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's 80 shit, but, uh, Maybe because you know Mark wasn't nearly as celebrated on a wide uh, scale as 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 they were. You know, uh, never had a hit single. You know, never uh, there was never the big Rolling Stone profile, which there should have been all along. You know, yeah, because there there was there was just such a a body of work, and uh, I I like the Screaming Trees, but I I have to say I don't listen to them that much. You know, uh, I think Dust is might might be my favorite record of theirs. Um, but I mostly concentrated on Mark's, uh, you know, solo work. So, you know, uh, I, the last podcast, I drew a pretty hard line between Screaming Trees fans and Mark Lanigan fans. I was like, we yeah. are, we are not the same. The, I'm, uh, I'm a, I do everything bad. You know, I'm not like a guy with his finger on the pulse. I just hear things and like them, you know, like I, I, I got into Twilight Singers speaking of Mark's people, you know, I heard the Twilight Singers before I heard the Afghan wigs. Even though I lived in Indianapolis, where I grew up down the street from the patio where the Afghan wigs played all the time, and my brother was the bouncer, was a doorman there. I had no, you know, and I like the Afghan wigs too, but sometimes you just like what you heard first the most because that's where you had that first connection. So I was, you know, loyal to the, I liked the, the Twilight Singers records to me had kind of, were more dynamic uh, and uh, what? more dynamic in a way. One of the things I think about when, um, you know, when you talk about seeing him live and him just sort of having so much, having this uh, performative immobility of mm-hmm. right, him just standing there and that being enough. You know, the I think about the, um, one of the things that I learned, you know, when I first got sober, which I think is, it's, I think it's, you know, it, it may also be, you know, a thing from the program, you know, of when you have a bad feeling, uh, just just sit in it, you know, until it goes away. Don't stop trying to escape things. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that's probably, that's a good metaphor or a good analogy, um, you know, with Lanigan is that he was, he grew very comfortable at sort of like just sitting in the flames or sitting in the block of ice or, you know, the, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, the, I think a lot of Mark's fans have had uh, struggles, you know, with, with substance, I, you know, just, I'm, you know, just looking around at the audience and, and a lot of the people, a lot of his fans who I've talked to, uh, you know, gravitated towards his music because you listened to it and you knew you were listening to someone who, who understood, you know, or, or gave some kind of voice to it or could even, if you're in the midst of it, you know, help, help keep your nose above water at least. You know, maybe till you get to land, hopefully down the road, you know. Yeah, there, there was something about his, um, the music, the lyrics, his voice, all of it together, something, some other ineffable, you know, undescribable thing um, where, um, you know, they weren't necessarily comforting songs, but I right. but provided me with a tremendous amount of comfort. Yes. Um, the, you know, it was sort of like um, being enveloped in the warmth of another human being's suffering. 
you know, that, the, the simpatico thing of, you know, the, um, you know, if you, if you're in hell and you have one friend, at least you're not alone. You know? Oh, indeed. <laughs> to me, they weren't sad. You know, there's people that say dark music, sad music. They were, um, what, what happens after sadness, you huh. know, when you not, not, I don't mean extra sad or like super sad. I mean, uh, a sense of resignation in a way of um as you said being comfortable living in the darkness and and perhaps to a degree accepting one's fate you yeah. know yeah. somebody i was talking to somebody about um about the pandemic about shutdown um about the the last two hellish years and you know sort of my yeah. Um, my public trials and our sort of the, the communal suffering versus my own private, uh, my own private hell, the, and, you know, I told them, I was like, I, you know, I've, I've come um, as close to relapse as I could ever imagine. And I, I didn't. Um, and that means that I'm, uh, I'm stronger than I thought I was. And also mm -hmm. weaker. Um and, you know, I mean, I, I think that's in part what you're describing, you know, of, of this sort of the wave of sadness crashes and then it mm -hmm. recedes and what's left there on the shore, you know, the, mm -hmm. um, so there, you know, maybe, maybe some resignation, maybe some access, acceptance, some, mm -hmm. um, you know, some resolute thing and the, and also too, like the, you know, when the worst thing that you can imagine happens to you and it doesn't kill you, then you're like, huh, all right. I can survive this. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, what's next? You know, now that the thing that we have feared the most, you know, has happened to us and, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't destroy us or it didn't destroy me. Well, well, what now? You know, that, that, that you, that there is a gift there because then you can look on to the future and say, well, what does mm -hmm. the future you know yeah the, for sure um what what brought you what was your chuck berry what was your gateway drug to editing the 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 books that you have because you i was thinking about the books that you've worked on and and i feel like they do have um the the stamp of your hand you know not to say that they're samey but that mm -hmm. you are sort of curating a body of work of um the 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 you know the the writers you work with and the artists you work with you know that it, it is sort of like um i too have survived music or something like that you know the is that a fair assessment or yeah i i think it is um with i think with the, the books i've signed up and published in the years i've been working at publishing I, i'm not necessarily gravitating towards the biggest celebrity or the most famous person there um i think some of its instinct but a lot of it is is doing books by people who will who will have uh, readers who have a very strong sense of identification with the subject of the book or with the author of the book if it happens to be the artist uh them you know uh themselves you know i'm trying to get my him or herself or whatever and uh I, I sometimes I'll make the joke, you know, I, that I'll do books for people who dress like the music they listen to. 
<laughs> you know how you can that's why I've done a lot of punk rock books and a lot of metal books. You know how sometimes you can spot a metal fan or a punk rock fan just by looking at them. It's it's just a fact because Absolutely. they're wearing the shirt, you know, they're wearing the uniform. And I was that kind of person in some ways. I, I still very much am that kind of person, you know. So um, and I always figure, well, if someone's going to, you know, express their, you know, allegiance in their clothing that way there's a good chance they might come to a, a book too you know and that kind of book can exist on its own terms whether or not it gets enough press or whether or not NPR decides to do something about it you know what I mean whether or not at least a certain group of people will come to it and you know uh, make it a viable endeavor for a publishing company you know because you want your books to you want the books to succeed. You don't want to do all that work and have, you know, just crickets, which happens too, of course, you know? Um, so it's been a lot of, you know, for that reason, it's been a lot of punk rock books or metal books or alternative, which is an even, seems like an even more antiquated term, something like that. But I think they all have, uh, have readers who don't only, they don't just listen to the music for fun. Right. You know, people have a lot more skin in the game. They need it, you know. I'm the same way, man. I, I wouldn't understand uh, probably any of my emotions if I didn't have a song to attach them to, you know. If there wasn't a song that that put 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 it in some way that, you know, that I could relate to. Shit, I feel like that too. I know exactly what she's singing about there, you know. Yeah. Holy crap, you know. I mean, like Lou Reed said early, earlier, Lou Reed said, you know, I, I, I'm just want to make music so people won't feel so alone, you know. And uh, that's in part why he wrote. And I, I think that makes total sense. You know, it might all start with him in a certain way, him and Dylan, these kind of, you know, <clears throat> smart guys who are kind of mean also. <laughs> I immediately liked them, you know, and uh, wanted to come to New York because of them. It was definitely like the Velvet Underground. When the first time I heard them, it was like my brain was waiting to hear them. It was like, oh, man, it just latched right on like that's exactly what i want music to sound like you know and in the 80s in the early 80s when this would have been about 84 so when i was uh 13 or 14 or whatever um you know it was like a dispatch from a, i was i grew up in indianapolis indiana it was very it was the 80s like you know it wasn't like the 50s but it was strange you know it was like it was weird it's like it's like the 70s came to indiana before the 60s did almost <laughs> or something you know i'm not saying it was backwards because it wasn't but it was a conservative place you know and um this was before it was pre-cobain you know so you know the it was you know jocks and cheerleaders ran the ran the social scene you know yeah. and um it was it was sort of conventional things hadn't really been flipped around yet like they were maybe in in 10 years uh 10 years or so you know that that they would be so it was like Oh, that's what that's the world I want to go to. I want to go to New York or downtown New York, you know. And the cool thing was it was still around then. I mean, obviously those people were older, you know, it was way after that had happened. But those people were alive and they were around and you could meet them. You know, you could walk up to them. You run into them at the coffee shop or something, you know, once you got there, which is pretty amazing, you know. It was pretty extraordinary. So that those are, I think those are the kind of, you know, that, that kind of impulse, that intense identification uh, with the music. 
Um, that's why you can do one can work at a big publisher like I do and do books by quote cult heroes. Maybe even now more so than ever since you know everyone what they're reading and listening and watching. Everyone is in their own little taste silo now anyway. It's not like we're all listening to the same hit songs. You know, a, a song could be a humongous worldwide hit, and you or I might never hear it. Yeah, because there's especially you and I. Yeah, yeah <laughs> especially. Yeah, I mean, you might hear it out when you're walking around and things like that. But you know, they the, the whole idea of a monoculture it doesn't really happen the same way that that it used to. The um, dude, I did not know you were from Indiana. That I, I feel like that changes everything. The because um, you know my the you know the sort of particle of ice nine that made my sort of whole musical identity crystallize was uh, was of course seeing that well the welcome to the jungle video in whatever mm-hmm. 1986 or 1987 and it's sure. blowing my fucking mind you know and thinking about you know young Bill Bailey stepping off the bus in uh, in in Hollywood um, yeah. you know straight out of Indiana. And, yeah. um, you know, getting his, Lafayette, Indiana. yeah, the, yeah. um, so it's, and, and my editor at New York press, um, had me write a piece, um, on my sort of 10 year anniversary of being in New York. Um, and I, uh, I titled the piece on not making it because, because I hadn't made it at that point or I, I don't know if I have yet, whatever. Yeah. Um, the But the analogy that I drew, I said, you should imagine a young Bill Bailey coming to New York um, instead of L.A., you know, because that's, um, that's I, I was 21 when I moved to the city. The, so quite a bit later than you. But um, it's so interesting to find out that you came from Indiana. <laughs> and um, the so but um, you didn't move to New York until much later correct but you were making trips to new york at that you know when when you were when you were that young or yeah i did trips uh to new york because my uh my aunt my dad's sister lived in uh connecticut and so um i would take the train in and um you know that was the but i didn't move there till about 1993 okay and um so i was 21 22 uh when i moved and it was a really it was a, a good and bad time to move to downtown New York because it was still there, but it was over real fast <laughs> by 2000, almost in a way. And then nine 11 really oh, yeah. kibosh on things. And, and then kind of, that was a real, a real catalyst for a whole new wave of change that would take it. So you get there, you fall in love with it and it kind of ends. And I'm not someone who's going to complain because the city changes, obviously cities change, you know, yeah. but that's their yeah. job. It was like the, the tail end of the comet. <laughs> but but when you did um, when you did move to New York, when you when you started making trips to New York, that was still a time where you could just come to New York and track down your hero because they yeah. hung out at fucking Baby Jupiter or Arlene's Groceries or CBG sure. or wherever, and you could just go if you went there enough time. I remember going to Baby Jupiter like three times until we finally, then we finally saw Mike Doty. And then yeah. we were like, well, now what do we do? And then... You know, I did his books. I know, I know. The um, yeah. And I uh, I quoted one of his lyrics in uh, in my book. And oh, uh, he, he came to a show in, um, in Memphis and was very cool. 
the right on um yeah really really good guy and another artist that i think has sort of flown below the radar um mm -hmm. uh, hard-working guy puts out tons of shit he was just here i saw him just a few weeks ago he's doing well he was playing a residency here in la that's right um at harvard and stone improvised music it was really terrific with a bunch of different people i knew i knew mike back then I, he was sort of the first uh person in our peer group who kind of made it you know whose band kind of took off we weren't great buddies but we were friendly acquaintances for sure back then his best friend who we'd grown up with was in graduate school with my roommate at the time then so we kind of overlapped that way and uh that was kind of amazing you know so coughing we're we're really we're really special of course and his solo work's really terrific as well the um that's you know uh, you know, a lot of my friends are still in New York and a lot of my friends are significantly younger. And I feel, um, I, I, I both feel bad for them that there isn't the, um, there isn't for them what there was for us, sort of a reverse field of dreams thing of like, mm -hmm. uh, if you come, then we'll build it. That kind of thing of, you know, yeah. you just, just get to the city and then, uh, suffer for 18 months or three years and then things will start to happen for you. You know, the, um, because now there is a, um, a whole sort of like established tribe and support group of young people who are trying to make it in <laughs> podcasting or comedy or, you know, art installations or, um, the, but that also, that makes it, um, dramatically easier and dramatically harder. I bet. I just can't imagine trying to do that now. You know, I didn't really have any talent, though. So, you know, I, I was I, I work for a company. You know what I mean? I had to get a job. And I'm also like Midwestern in that practical sense. You need something to fall back on. You know, I'm not someone who lives by his wits or can scuffle like you have or, you know, a young artist might when they're when they're coming you know, to the city. It's like, uh you know, I need order. <laughs> and uh, I quickly learned that I, my first job, you know, in the city, I worked for Allen Ginsberg in his office. He had uh, three full-time employees and uh, I booked his tours and, um, you know, helped put the books together and some audio things together. And that was like an incredible introduction to, you know, downtown New York, because all these people would pass through his office. You never knew who might stop by you know whether it was Lou Reed Bono Philip Glass painter Francesco Clemente Robert Frank Herbert Hunky Gregory all these Corso all these people who were real and a part of his world you know who you've been reading about um it turned out you know they were they were actual people you know and uh it was enough you know the pay was decent enough to get by he was an incredibly generous person um you know, pretty much any money he made went back into running running that office uh, to organize his incredibly, uh, you know, busy life with all these variety of projects and things that he was involved in. He would go down tour to bring in because he would get a decent amount, you know, per per reading. He was uh, putting his photo archive together into some kind of you know coherent, retrievable form. You know, all the pictures of the beats from the fifties and sixties were generally taken by him. Wow. Um, back in the day any 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 picture you've seen of Kerouac or Burroughs or any of those guys is, is usually a in a photo by Allen you know yeah. uh, if it's if it's of a certain you know 40s 50s or 60s or that that era or 70s even um so that was yeah it, it, it 
it, you know, it was, it was a really amazing time and I don't want to be an old fart about it, but it, it really was, you know? <laughs> One of the things that I think is a mistake that I have made and continue making and will make again is that I always prioritize um, history. The, mm-hmm. and I, I never, um, I, I never understand or accept that uh, the great art is unfolding right now. The great, un- the great poetry is unfolding right now that, you know, yeah. fantastic new filmmakers are being born. And, and there are people who will make art um, who are born today, um, you know, that were shitting on because they grew up with iPhones or whatever. And they're going to make something that's just fucking mind blowing that we can't even conceptualize now that yes. we're um, we always look to the past. We're sort of, um, you know, I, <laughs> I talk to people now and they're like, Oh my God, you lived in Greenpoint. Did you go to that place? Like in girls? And I was like, yeah, I fucking lived in Greenpoint. We had no other option, you know? And like now all those, all the people who were living in Greenpoint are now in Long Island city, or if they've been priced on Long Island city, they're in fucking crown Heights or Philly Mm -hmm. or, you know, the, the, in 20 years, they'll be uh, colonizing Indiana you know, because we all, we've been priced out of New York and Philly and DC and, you know, the, um, yeah, the new hotspot is Lafayette, Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) That would really be something. It is a college town, you know, but, uh, Hey, you never know. Uh, Indianapolis looks pretty great these days. I I was back there last year and it's a, it's a much nicer city than it was when I was growing up. It really feels like a real city, uh, to me. Uh, you know, I, I, when I was going up there, I probably, I, you know, I didn't see the whole place either. I pretty much stayed on my side of town. So maybe, maybe that's part of it. But yeah, there are people. I, I think we tend to gravitate. Maybe we look at the past so much because uh, I, th- I, I feel like most people bond heaviest to the music they fell in love with when they were teenagers. You know, the music you heard when you were going through puberty or the music you heard when you first had your heart broken or when you first fell in love or first got really, truly angry at someone or something, you know, your brain latches onto that and it never lets go. And it, as one ages, it gets harder and harder to experience music with that same amount of intensity, you know, which was why it was really great to, you know, discover Lanigan. And for me, 2004, I'm not sure how old I was at 30, wait, 32, I guess, something like that, you know, which seems like relatively late to me to pick up on a favorite new artist and you know when i when i got into him i don't think i listened to anything else for like oh yeah two, three years like yeah. years i got completely i just kind of shut everything else out for lots of other reasons too but it arrived at exactly the right time you know yeah for certain the i you know i will always argue in favor of the maddening, expensive, time-consuming task of sorting through all the new writing, all the new music, all that shit, because um, we can be lazy and and let time do that work of um, sorting out the shit from the food, you know, the Mm -hmm. chaff from the straw and say, oh, these are, these are the great artists. And it, you know, it just took, you know, 20 years to the, you know, for us to realize that but and it's it's um much harder and god it's so inefficient to figure out who's doing it now um but i you know i watched that polystyrene doc and the yeah you know they're going down the um uh the you know the sort of top of the pops listings and like none of the 
the bands, you know, above and below them on the listing, you would never fucking, if you, you know, if you came up on their records in the, you know, in the cutout bin, like you would feel, fuck that, you know, I'm no, the, you know, and, and these are artists that sort of like popped and had the hit for that week or that month or whatever, and then disappeared and then ne- never did anything else, you know, the, yeah. um, so it's, um, we do have to do that work. The, on that note, one of the things that I, you know, I need, I must grill you about is mm-hmm. that the, everybody loves shitting on gatekeepers now as oh, an yeah. editor, as an editor, you are a professional gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. The, um, how do, how do you defend that you monster? No, that, that's not how I'm going to phrase it. The, <laughs> I feel like gatekeepers often play an important role. I worked as a bouncer for in, you know, in bars in New York for a long time. That is a literal gatekeeper. I kept a yeah. lot of fucking weirdos and perverts out, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know, talk about, can you talk a little bit about the, the appeal of being an editor? What, what drew you to it? What, what your responsibilities are? I mean, you've talked about it a little bit, you know, the, you know, some of the people, I think, we're talking about Stan Hope called him the, um, you know, the world's biggest underground comedian or something like that. And, you know, and, and you can apply a moniker like that to Lanigan as well. Same with Dave Van Ronk, you know? Yeah. The, um, and, you know, and also like, if you're a Lanigan fan, you're not like, Oh, I sort of casually got into it. You know, it's like the, all the casual meth users in the world. No, yeah. the, if, you, if you got into it, you let it destroy your life, man. You know, the, um sure so uh i don't know talk a little bit about um life as an editor you know also um you know a lot of my a lot of my friends um a lot of people who listen to this are are themselves writers hardcore readers aspiring writers people who are looking to publish the you know um you know what can you tell us about what you do and and what do you want from them right well, it's it's interesting term gatekeeper. Of course, I don't necessarily think of myself as a gatekeeper per se. I, I think I'm I'm just someone who who kind of knows what he can make work within this framework, and that framework is book publishing. I guess I have a relatively narrow field uh, of it. You know, there are editors who are much more generalist than I am. You know. No one's going to send me a novel to publish, for example. I don't really know. I don't read them. I don't really know what makes a good novel. You know, I, I, I remember these... sending you uh, Sam Talent's thing. Uh, yeah, Sam Talent's yeah. excellent novel, Running the Light. And yeah, I feel like your response was like, I can tell this is good, but also it's not like what I do, you know? <laughs> well, Robert Frost said, why would I want to be round, you know, well-rounded, like, so I could roll downhill? I don't know if he really said that. That might be one of those misattributed things that you see everywhere, but I think he did say that. I, I, I guess, um, for one thing, the gatekeeping aspect of it is something I actually really don't like. I don't like saying no. I don't like rejecting books. I don't get my jollies crushing dreams by any stretch of the imagination. On the contrary, I feel terribly guilty about it a lot of the time. Uh, it's it stresses me out. It's a bummer. It's it can be a real you know sort of drag to live with you know that sort of kind of perceived uh, power. When when I if I do read something that I have a sense is good, and it, I only think it might be good just because I enjoy it. You know, it's not that complicated. I you know it's like 
if someone says, I don't know what a good book is or a good movie, it's like, of course you do. You know, did you like it? It's not that hard to figure out. You know, I will try and be helpful and pass it on to someone, whether it be an agent or another publisher who could do right by it, you know, in a way that uh, I, I am maybe maybe can't, you know, as far as how, how I ended up here, you know, doing what I do with the music, pop culture or comedian or some actor books, you know, I, I, I feel like in a way I, I, I stumbled into it because I came there from, from Ginsburg's world. And at that point I was thinking, well, maybe I can, this is how dumb I was. I was thinking maybe I can work, you know, find work with poets for the rest of my life and, <laughs> and make a living. I mean, good God. You know, I thought, well, maybe all poets have like three employees. The, the, I mean, the lucrative. Jesus, talk about a root. Yeah. Talk about a rube, you know. I, I mean, I knew Alan was of, of yeah. being a, a hanger-on to poets. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, an assistant or something in that world. Like, you know, I, I I knew Ginsburg was famous. Obvious, it was pretty obvious when I'd walk around New York with him, but I didn't realize what you know a rare thing that is. You know, um, even rarer now it seems. Um, but you know eventually I, I i went to work in publishing because i not that i wanted to get away from from his world but i did see that it wasn't going to last forever and that i had to get my own kind of thing going that wasn't attached to someone else's life you know and i mean i went into publishing i went in, in the publicity department i took the first job i was offered which was like being a publicist for cookbooks you know and I wasn't very good at it. I mean, I was really quite bad, you know, but they said after a couple of months, like, this is not working out, but you're a nice guy. Maybe you could work in the uh, editorial department of the children's book division. And I, I was there for a few years writing the back copy on picture books and children's books and things. And uh, children's books authors, by the way, are, are much nicer than adult books. <laughs> authors and uh that was that was terrific too and then and then i'd been at that that company a while and then i eventually transferred over and started working in the adult book division you know for an editor as an editorial assistant and once i was did that for several years eventually i was able to acquire my own books and i just you know sign up um you know books to publish and it and I just gravitated towards stuff that I liked, which was music. It's really all I cared about was music and books. And I'd always read rock bios and rock memoirs and stuff like that. And so I started basically doing books that I knew I could talk about in front of people comfortably. When you sign up a book and edit it, you often have to present a book to a whole room full of salespeople, publicity people, marketing people. And you have to do it quickly and succinctly and be able to place it in some kind of continuum that's going to make sense to them. You know, and I have in my head every, every music book that came out in that, in that certain kind of area that I do. So I know where this book I want to do is going to fit in and, and why we should do it. And I can talk about that, I think, in a way that makes, this, you know, that makes sense for them. So what I'm doing is kind of being like an advocate for the book within, a, within the company I'm not, I'm not someone who can, um, I'm not at the point in publishing where I can see a book and be like, I'm going to publish that and know what's going to happen. I have to convince a few other people that it's worth doing, you know? So I, I don't think I'm the ultimate gatekeeper. The ultimate gatekeeper is, at least in the way publishing tends to be structured, is, is several people, you know? 
making a collective decision. The editor likes a book. They bring it to edit- editorial board. They say, we should do this book. And this is why. And these are other books that are kind of like it that did this well. That's also the comp thing. It's extremely important because that's what salespeople understand. Because their reality is they have to go out and take the book to book retail and tell them you should put this book on your shelf because. And that because has to be quantifiable in some way, you know. Um, so, you know, once once every couple of years, you can say, you've got to let me do this book. Just let me do this book because I believe in it. But you can only say that every once in a while, because yeah. if you say that every month, it ain't going to count. You know what I mean? So you have to keep those in your pocket and kind of cash them in every so often because the person who wants a month is like, this is the best thing I've ever read. Eventually, no one's going to believe you because there just can't be that many best things you ever read. You know what I mean? Um, maybe it's collective, uh, collective gatekeeping. Believe me, I, I take no joy in you know, shutting someone out or bum, bumming I, them out by rejecting them. I was going to say book. capitalism is the ultimate gatekeeper. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is why I will argue in favor of editors. And this is why I will defend mm-hmm. gatekeepers um, mm-hmm. and, and defend an editor's and, 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 you know, an acquiring editor's role at a publisher. You know, there are a lot of people in, you know, the online community, subreddits, self-publishing who are like, oh, fuck editors. We don't need them. We just, you know, write our own thing. And then the market dictates its value. The, yeah. but we have, um, so you know there are so many instances where if the market was dictating it's about the value of you know if it was just a free market thing you would be doing like uh kanye's book on hot yoga or you know Mm -hmm. malibu (laughs) veganism or whatever the fuck you know it would you would just be taking the top three trending topics on twitter for that month and oh that becomes a book you know Mm -hmm. and that's that isn't what you're doing. That's not what you've done in your in your history. What you have done is to to, to try to find underappreciated artists, artists that have, yeah. have sort of surfed below the current, but that you find that has merit that uh, you know exceeds the accolades that they've gotten to that point, and then to try and bring that to a um, to a broader audience. So, I mean, the to say gatekeeper, I think, is totally deceptive. I mean, the in, in my, I mean, granted, I'm biased because you published Mark's book, and I'll be forever yeah. grateful to you for that. The, but you know, in the same, a bouncer. If you're a good bouncer, you'll be throwing two people out a night and bringing four hundred people in, right? Yeah. The most yeah. important part of your job, of your role, is is to choose the people you say yes to, mm-hmm. and and then yell it from the fucking rooftops you mm-hmm. know uh, i still remember with like giddy the, the amount of sort of giddy nauseous joy i felt when i was driving in my car we just turned in lanigan's manuscript to you and i was so and i'd just been down the well with him like he and i just been sort of big oh, fighting back and forth and i was so worried yeah yeah, I'm sure that it was so fucked up and that like there's there was no way, you know, that you guys were going to take it and it was going to, you know, take all these rewrites and stuff. And then I, I got your phone call when I was driving and you were like, man, I don't know how to say this. And my heart fucking sank. I was like, oh, I'm just going to steer into the meeting median. And you were like, this is so great. You know, this is like this is so good. And I was just like, 
we should straighten the wheel out. You know, we like, we stuck the landing. We fucking did it, man. You know, not only oh, you stuck it completely, man. I I read that, and of course, I'm predisposed to like it and all of that. But I think I'm I'm clear headed about that, and I know I'm not alone in it because remember how everyone who read it initially, like when I sent out for all the blurbs that we got, we got you know Jerry Stahl and Michael Hall and. Yeah. Uh, Lucinda Williams, all these people, everyone we sent it to read it in like four days, yeah. which is like an incredible sign. Uh, because when you send things out for blurbs, you often don't hear anything back. And pr- that's probably because they start it and they're like, eh, and you put it down and then weeks go by and they've forgotten about it. Everyone who read it was instantly sucked right in and read it fast. Everyone I gave it to in those early stages read it in under a week. And, you know, with, with horror <laughs> and with being completely, you know, being unable, you know, unable to turn away from the page. You know, I was so, so psyched when I started reading it because you are, you do, it is true that you kind of know almost immediately, um, you know, when you really, when you have to push yourself to read um, a book or a certain, I'm not saying that, I mean, there are many good books that require a lot of effort, but uh it's great when you don't have to push yourself <laughs> when it, when it almost reads itself, you know, you look at the page yeah. and you hear the words and there isn't a ton of mental exertion. In fact, the only exertion you have to put out there is being able to put it down. You know, that actually, when that takes a bit of willpower, it's like, Oh, I'm so tired. I have to go to sleep, but I got to keep reading. You know, that is such a great sign. And that happened, uh, man, that happened uh, immediately with this. Yeah. For sure. Oh, quickly, though, back to the gatekeeper thing. Um, I just want to say for the record, I'm wrong all the time. You know, Um, I don't think I necessarily know everything, but I've made a million bad calls uh, about, you know, not signing up something. Maybe I should have that went on to do well. And uh, I think that's any editor's dirty little secret. We'll certainly talk about it amongst ourselves, but every editor has a long list of things that they should have done, you know, they should have signed up. It would have done well. It would have secured your job for another year to be the guy who bought in that book. You know what I mean? And yeah. it was like, at the same time, eh, you know what? It came out anyway. It did well. Obviously things happen the way they should for that book. So you probably shouldn't beat yourself up about it. I passed on Jewel's book of poetry, for example, because <laughs> I had just come from working for Allen Ginsberg, a real poet. And I could not live with myself if I published that book, which um, did not work for me as, as poetry personally. That's a subjective thing, nothing against, but I just, you know, it, I didn't think it was very good. And what do I know? It ended up selling over a million copies, you know, yeah. which is insane for a poetry book. Even, you know, one by someone who was already having a hit record. That is insane. It probably wouldn't happen now if it came out today, of course. That was the time. There was everything lining up you know, perfectly for that book at that particular time. So things happen as they should. But, you know, you, you always do remember, uh, you know, whoops, should have done that, you know? That's, you know, I mean, I, that's part of the process. You know, I, I was talking to uh, talking to somebody the other night who, um, you know, had a hip hop label and, and, you know, we were talking about regrets and he was like, oh yeah, you know, there was, you know, this guy we almost signed and then didn't, you know, maybe you've heard of Mac Miller. So, oh, wow. Oh God. Yeah. No, I, the, you know, my, my history is littered with bad decisions like that, but also oh this is one of the things that, you know, when, um, 
don't get me wrong. Uh, I fucking hate editors and I love, I love to shit on editors and I love riling up other writers to be like, fuck editors, but also we're all human beings and we're, and, and we're working in the pursuit of, of art, of narrative, of literature, of storytelling. We're all in this game not for not because we get a new Porsche every year or because of all the yeah. all the coke you get for being a poetry <laughs> you know the yeah. these are all people who love words who love language who love thinking about language and, and stuff like yes. that and the as writers how fucking lucky are we to have editors to hate to have a, to have a, a human like that to engage in battle with about the importance of literature and writing and storytelling and, and, and stuff like that, you know, the, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're all, we're all, whether we're on one side of the fence or the other, we're all in in it for the same reason, which is that we love it, which is that it's meaningful. Yeah. It's kind of a calling. You do it because you're, you get obsessed with it when you're young and you can't see yourself doing much else. You certainly can't see yourself getting an MBA or something or, you know, or uh, doing something with numbers, you know, one of the hardest things when I work with a lot of musicians and things like that, one of the hardest things to convince, they've dealt with the record business so long that they're kind of, they're kind of used to a really adversarial kind of, of, of situation, right? And like, the one nice thing about publishing is that most people in publishing are pretty nice people. You know what I mean? They're not, they never got into it to get rich because you want to talk about that is seriously barking up the wrong tree. I'm not saying <laughs> there aren't some really well paid people in publishing. There are, but you know, the rank and file, you know, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily, a, it's not going to be a lucrative thing. If it gets anywhere remotely near it, it takes a very, very long time, at least, you know, a couple decades of, of hammering away at it, you know? And um, publishers also, unlike record labels, don't have a long history of rip- ripping people off, of hiding costs and charging things back to the artists and, you know, not honoring contracts and things like that. Like, it's a pretty honest business for the most part, you know? I'm sure there's been, maybe some people would completely laugh if they saw that, but I don't think there's a lot of hiding of royalties. I think most things are relatively, uh, you know, transparent as far as um, publishing goes. Um, Publishers are not looking to fuck authors over uh, by any means. Everyone obviously wishes there was more money for everyone involved. Obviously, it's an extremely um, tough way to make a living. But it's also, you know, it's not it's not easy to sell books. It's an old form. It's harder than well, actually, you know, they're doing better now than they were several years ago. But there's a lot of things competing for people's attentions, uh, attention spans and getting people to read uh, something that's longer and more sustained is pretty hard these days. Everyone's attention span is completely, mine included, is, is fragmented by all this information, you know, we're taking in. Um, but as I said, you know, it, it, unlike publishing record, record labels do have a really sketchy history and the music business is much sketchier and let's face it, there is more of a, cult, a, a culture of assholery in that world. <laughs> you know, there yeah, really well, is. There's a, there's a, you know, a, 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 I don't know, a, a real bruiser aspect to it, you know? Um, that, you know I, I've dealt with like a bunch of different record labels and we've had contracts and stuff like that. We're talking about very, very small amounts of money here. And yeah. it, not once has it ever gone according to contract. The, yeah. you know, my... Um, 
my biggest relationships are with um uh with my agent who i've never had a contract with mm-hmm. well in it's all been handshake stuff and um you know and then dealing with amazon and audible and there have been sort of like contracts over the years and stuff but but so much of it is just um i trust my point person there you know and i know that yeah. uh, the you know amazon and audible and you know, that whole sort of uh, empire, they have made some very, you know, obviously some very nefarious, you know, business decisions and stuff that I can't defend. And what's, mm-hmm. what's tricky about it is every single person who I've met over there and talked to um, has been wonderful. And they're, and they're obviously, right on. Very, um, you know, very clearly driven by love of the game, you know? Yeah, yeah. The um, Let's wrap up quickly but um before we go i uh i mean ben i love you i feel so uh i feel so grateful to have had the experience working with you um you know to bring marks to light and me too it really it helped having you to talk to throughout the intense experience that it was and still continues to be yeah it was um it felt it felt like some fucking mythic quest and i you know my sort of head still spins that we you know we we all sort of like took that trip together um no i in my role as uh fake uh bad journalist terrible podcaster the i would be remiss if i let you go without asking you about life in 29 palms <laughs> life in 29 you mean what it's like yeah, I, I talked to I, I talked to a um, I talked to a Kickstarter or no, it was a Patreon supporter the other day who lives in Twenty Nine Palms. You know a little bit. Oh, about, right on. It made me. There's a there's a Canadian sitcom called Corner Gas, which is incredible, and it's about the fictional town of Dog River, Saskatchewan. And right. I feel like there is. Um, I'm starting to think about Twenty Nine Palms as a sort of Dog River, Saskatchewan meets maybe like Tremors. Or mm-hmm. like uh, uh, Randy Quaid's character in uh, I almost said Apocalypse Armageddon is right. Right, it, it, there is some uh, like survivalist. Um, yeah. Uh, what was uh, Winesburg, Ohio? You know, uh, Short Anderson. You know, sure. Yeah. The grotesques uh, and sur- all that. A survivalist uh, Winesburg, <laughs> Ohio. The, I mean, what, how is it there? Um, I love it. I love I love living mostly. I mean, I'm in West Hollywood today, but most of my time I'm in uh, Wonder Valley, which is 15 miles east of 29 Palms, uh, even further out in the in the boonies, as it were. You 29 know? Palms was too much of the sort of uh, you know, yeah. metropolis. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it is kind of when you live in Wonder <laughs> Valley. Wonder Valley is 650 people. Uh, it's an unincorporated area. It's completely beautiful. It's co- completely. Uh, there's nothing there, so to speak, but there's a lot there, which is the desert and desert life and the sky and the wildlife and the vegetation that grows there in spite of the harsh conditions and the overwhelming silence and the wind, which can go completely crazy. And the rain when it does rain is, is everything's extreme, you know, in a certain way. It's a great place to be if you don't mind being alone. And I really don't. 29 is great, too. You know, last weekend they opened a whole new plaza walking area downtown with a big outdoor stage and there was like a big party in town with bands and everything and food trucks and stalls and everything i couldn't believe it i was walking around, i was like am i in 29 
I've barely seen people walking around the streets there. So who knows? Maybe there's a new phase of it happening. You know, it's a small town. It's supported in large part by the Marine Base, uh, 29 Palms uh, Marine Base, one of, one of the largest uh, Marine bases in the world. If not, I don't know if it's the largest, but it's, it's up there. Uh, many thousands of people. And, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an up and coming place, I think. The high desert in California is going through a lot of changes. Just do a quick Google and you'll see like over the last year, a whole slew of articles about what's happening there which is what happens to everything cool. Eventually it gets discovered and, and, and people start who've lived there a long time start getting priced out, you know, and it seems like that process might be revving up there. And that's the concerning because it's, it's not a process that can ever be reversed once it starts in yeah. my experience, uh, you know? So the home values are going way up and a lot of people, the investors are buying things and turning them into Airbnbs, kicking out renters, and when renters get kicked out, they can't find, you know, the renting stock is depleting and they can't find what's left. They can't afford, you know, so it's, it's going through a lot of changes, but I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a great little town and I, I really like living there. I'm completely shocked that I do in a lot of ways. Cause I, I really thought I was a big city person and I'd probably be in New York the rest of my life. But you know uh, what, 10 years ago I moved um, to California and it's one of the best things I ever did, you know? Um, you know, I started getting sober and when I, when I did, I, I realized New York was, I looked around, I was like, Oh, wait, this is awful. <laughs> I don't have any more nerve padding. I got to get out of here. I'm not saying it's all, it's not awful for other people, you know, but I, New York is a, a change. And New York is a fantastic city to drink and use and bottom oh, yeah. fuck out in. And yeah. then you wake up and you're fucking 39 and you're like, I've done, I'm dying. All the, I've done, I've drank every free drink I could drink. I've sponged every fucking yep. grain of Coke I could sponge. I've hurt every feeling. I've hurt the, I, time to go. Man. Like, yeah. yeah. Time to hang it up. The, it's either um, that or die. That really is the stakes, you know, the stakes yeah. of your life. Yeah the oh man now i want to do another hour where we just talk about new york and being a lifer versus being a um the but we'll uh we'll continue the conversation another uh, well, maybe we'll do it some other time I'd, I'd be down with that awesome i'm a little out of touch with new york i can't believe i haven't been there in over two years now because of the pandemic you know for work i had to i had to be there four to six weeks out of the year for you know, right. things back at the office uh I, I, just booked, I just booked my first trip back in over two years. I'll be going uh, end of June, beginning of July. Um, right on. <laughs> this is this is a level of success my music career has. Is that I, I had started to book a tour and then I got an opportunity at a at a, a cat sitting gig and I was like, ooh, cat sitting. <laughs> that's that's far more my 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 style. I respect that choice. The, you can't sit for Mark Lanigan, don't forget. I this mean, how many true. people can I, say that? Yeah, I, I am a Hall of Fame cat sitter, I guess. The, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a good one to walk on. Uh, ben, thanks so much for doing this, man. It's, it's great to have you on. The um, Oh, shit, I got to do plugs. I never do this. It, folks, if you're listening, sign up for my fucking Patreon so I can get another mic stand that actually works so that I get a, a tiny little trickle of income to do this. 
um, my Patreon, the, my book just came out the long run and other stories, all my, all my digital shorts that came out through Amazon blurbed on the back by none other than Mark fucking Lanigan. The, do you, do you need another endorsement? Um, and, uh, Ben text me your, your, uh, your mailing address and I'll get a copy of the mail to you. Oh, cool. Yeah. That'd be great. The, I just, uh, I just did the opposite of selling merch. I just gave, just gave it away. The, thanks so much for doing it, man. I totally appreciate it. Always great talking to you. Thanks right, for having me. See ya. See you, bro. Bye. Catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him.